everybody spends a lot of time talking about famous last words, but as I mentioned with the kids just now, for the kids moment, I, I find famous first words nearly as interesting. The Bible starts with some pretty enormously significant and profound first words. What are the first words in the Bible? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It's not only the logical, chronological starting point at the very beginning, but the logical, theological starting point as well. You start with, uh, you start with God, Him as powerful creator. And so it's simple and it's beautiful and it's formative. Uh, similarly, first words in novels are critical for immediately setting the stage and captivating the reader. My favorite first lines in the novel belong to Stephen King, whose uh, epic passion project is called the Dark Tower series, and it's this sprawling epic over eight books that are explicitly about the Dark Tower series. But these characters and these places and these references in these eight books sprawl out and spread out into all of his writing. There's characters that pop up from the Dark Tower in, in, in all of his writing, and there's all these references throughout. And if you know anything about Stephen King, you know he's prolific. He has many, 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 many books. And, and for Stephen King, everything comes back to the Dark Tower. And all of this begins in book one of the Dark Tower series with these elegant and evocative first words, the man in black fled across the desert and the gunslinger followed. This whole world that he's created begins with that simple phrase. Simple, yes, but it sweeps you in. Uh, it tosses you headfirst into an absorbing and enormous cosmic conflict while also capturing the essence of the fantasy and the Western and the sci-fi novel that it is. First words are important. But first words don't just matter in literature. Consider the first words spoken uh, before the greatest exploratory voyage in human history reached its culmination point. And that's Neil Armstrong preparing to step onto the moon. The moon. How crazy is, is it that we take for granted that people like you and me have been on the moon? But just as he took his first step out of the lunar module to cross the threshold onto that familiar but seemingly unreachable surface, he uttered 12 of the greatest first words of all time. That's one small step for a man and one giant leap for mankind. It's poetic, it's distinct, it's timeless. But more than anything, it captured the enormity of the event that's taking place perfectly. Before stepping on the moon, those words captured just how significant that event was perfectly. And for those of you who heard it live on radio or television, I'm, I'm really jealous of you. That must be really something. So famous first words. Sometimes famous first words even sound prophetic. Did you know that Pablo Picasso could draw before he could speak? And in fact, he would ask for things, not by asking for them, but by drawing them out and giving them to his parents. He would draw them and say, this is what I want. So he would draw a cup, or he would draw, I don't know what he would draw. But, um, when he finally did get around to speaking, however, what did the most influential, influential painter of the 20th century, what was his first word? His first word was piz, which is a children's version of lapis, which means pencil. His first word was the tool that will launch him to international renown and fame. It seems like a prophecy, doesn't it? So there you have it, the importance of first words. The best ones are memorable, captivating, timeless, and prophetic. They invite us in, they ensnare our attention, they emphasize the significance of the moment, and they set the stage for what is coming, and they leave us gasping for more. That's the power of first words.
Well, today we begin a three-part exploration of the first words proclaimed by the Church following their baptism of the Holy Spirit. I believe that across the rest of Acts 2, which contains Peter's sermon and then its results, that we will see all the formative beauty of Genesis, of Genesis 1. We'll see all the captivating simplicity of the Dark Tower's first words, all the profound significance of Neil Armstrong's lunar declaration, all the prophetic power of Picasso's pencil. In many ways, we are given the baby church's first words, and they are worthy of examination. And so today we'll read the first por portion of Peter's first sermon, Acts 2, 13-23, beginning with verses 13-15. Let's read that together. And again, this comes out of the Holy Spirit comes, uh, his presence falls on them, um, they begin speaking in tongues, and all the people are amazed. And they say, what can this mean? But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying, They're just drunk, that's all. Then Peter stepped forward with the eleven other apostles and shouted to the crowd, Listen carefully, all of you, fellow Jews and residents of Jerusalem. Make no mistake about this. These people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. Pause there. So after the Holy Spirit makes his arrival known throughout, through the wind and through the fire, and the apostles uh, speaking in tongues, as they're kind of undoing the, cur the, the curse of the Tower of Babel, we looked at that last week, and they're praising God in all the languages of the foreign faithful who are gathered there. It's this incredible, amazing event. But, amazingly, some of the people present for this powerful miracle doubt its authenticity. And actually, if you think about it, that's really not so amazing at all. It's pretty much every human's first instinct to doubt the nature of the divine. Even Jesus' own followers, who were told, Jesus says, I will rise from the dead. Even his own followers, who were told that, failed to believe that it was really him when he, he you know, rose from the dead. He did exactly as he said he would, and they still doubt. They still don't believe. So maybe it's not too surprising at all when some of the men gathered around the apostles missed the miracle and assumed that Peter and the others are merely drunk. But Peter? Peter seizes the opportunity. I want us to notice two things here. Peter is no longer ashamed to be associated with Christ. He had been. Several weeks ago, his Galilean tongue was a sign of his partnership with the condemned Christ, and it led to Peter's denial of Jesus. Contrast that to today. Now, here, Peter's gift of tongues is a sign of his partnership with the risen Christ, with the Holy Spirit, and it leads to Peter's proclamation of Jesus. Whereas his tongue had led to his denial of Jesus. Here, the tongues lead to his proclamation of Jesus. And so the redemption of Peter is very real, and it gives hope to even the most faithless of followers. It gives hope to even you and I. But notice also how Luke emphasizes that this is not merely the Peter soapbox show. This is not Peter flying by himself. It's not a one-man act. Clearly, he is under the influence of something, and no, it's not wine, ye foolish mockers. And actually, I've, I've always considered that the most hilarious verse in the New Testament. Uh, the people accuse the apostles of being drunk. The best defense he has is, drunk? Nah, it's way too early to be drunk. It's nine in the morning. Now, if it was nine at night, maybe you could question it, but it's too early to be drunk. I've always thought that was really funny. And actually, both of the commentaries I read suggested that Peter was joking, that he was getting everyone's attention by, by making a lighthearted statement, so I don't feel bad about thinking it's hilarious, because famous commentators do too. 
But it certainly captures the attention. No, we're not drunk, okay, people? We're, there's nothing, none of that going on here. It's something else. Peter is clearly under the influence of something else. And that something is the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Peter is the surround sound stereo system through which the Holy Spirit can speak. He is the amplifier through which the words of the Holy Spirit are brought to the people. But the Spirit isn't the only one supporting Peter. Notice how Luke describes the scene in verse 14, that Peter stood up with the eleven. Peter is backed by the Holy Spirit and the eleven, and that is significant. Peter is not a solo artist. He has an authoritative backing band lending their support. As we'll see throughout the book of Acts, ministry and evangelism are always done as a team. They go in pairs. They, they encourage one another as groups. But more than that, more than just the fact that this is a team of men standing up to voice the Holy Spirit's words, more than that, having 12 men and, and more, because there's the other followers who are there too, men and women, but having these 12 specific apostolic men standing in unison, agreeing to the same facts, is a portrait of the unity of their witness. They are all together in this. Later in verse 32, which I think we'll look at next week, Peter mentions that we are all witnesses to God's resurrection of Jesus. And the we in that statement are all these faithful followers, all these apostles gathered in this, this room or wherever they are. At this point, Peter's probably preaching in the temple because there's all these people gathered. But witness, which in Greek is the same word from which we get the, the word martyr, the, the Greek word for witness is martyreo, and to be a martyr means you died witnessing the truth that you lived. And witness is one of the most crucial themes in Acts. And all 12 of these men, and many of the informal leaders, both male and female, have been following Jesus since his days in Galilee, three years prior. So their witness, their unified 12-headed witness, is trustworthy and true. Their testimony about him is all of one accord, solidified together in an unbreakable and unified way. They are completely united. In fact, and here's your Greek word nerd mo moment for the Sunday. I know you always look forward to those. Well, here it is. There's a specific word for the witness of the apostles, for the unified witness of the apostles. And it's a Greek word that means proclamation. So it's a broad word. The word is kerygma. Kerygma, it means any kind of proclamation. But when we're talking about the kerygma here in the, in the book of Acts, the kerygma is the common gospel message of the early church, spearheaded by the apostles. It was used as a sword to attack false truth, and it was used as a shield against false accusations. The kerygma was their fallback defensive position about what they believe. The kerygma had three basic features, and all three are prominent here in Acts 2, Peter's first sermon, as well as other speeches and sermons throughout the book of Acts, not to mention the epistles that form the rest of the New Testament. The kerygma is, in, is important. It's basically, before they had creeds in the church, so written statements that define exactly what it is they believe, the, the, the hills that they will die on, before they had that, they had the kerygma. The kerygma was how they presented their faith and what their faith said. And so here are the features of the kerygma. Number one, the kerygma features an historical proclamation of the life, death, resurrection, and exaltation of Jesus, set forth as the fulfillment of prophecy and involving humanity's responsibility. What does that mean? 
It means that Jesus' life, death, return to life, and glorification happened because God predicted that it would happen. He prophesied that it would. And his life, death, resurrection, and glorification, they are on our heads. We are responsible for his death. We made that happen. Number two, the kerygma features a theological evaluation of the person of Jesus as both Lord and Christ. Separate titles that both apply powerfully to Jesus. So looking at his life, his death, his resurrection, looking at how that is a fulfillment of prophecy, looking at how we're responsible for that, they then move into what does this mean about this person, Jesus, who we're teaching you about now. And finally, number three, there is always a summons to believe and to receive the forgiveness of sin. Having looked at who Jesus is, having examined him theologically, what's it going to mean for you? What are you going to do about it? There's a call and a response to the creator. So again, this was the form and content of the gospel put forth by the apostles and the early church. It was presented in different ways. It's not always exactly the same thing. They used different arguments at different times. Um, but the kerygma always contained these elements. And in the next two weeks after today, we will see these elements being explored by Peter. Today, I mentioned the kerygma sort of set the stage for the next two weeks, but also to highlight how unified the apostles were, that Peter stands up and the apostles are all with him and they're all saying the same thing, this kerygma message. Next week, we'll examine part one and two of the kerygma. We'll look at Jesus' life, death, resurrection and glorification, the prophecy, the human responsibility, and the theological evaluation of Jesus' lordship and Christship. It's all here in Peter's sermon. And the week after that is an examination of part three, our response to the kerygma. That's just so you know, in case you're keeping track at home, so you know if you want to skip any of that, you, now you know what's coming, you can skip it, don't skip it, better not, because I keep track. Um, and by the way, I now count five Greek words that I've taught you so far in Acts. Let's see if you remember any. What is eschaton? Does anybody remember eschaton? <laughs> I need to teach better. Eschaton means end times. How about parousia? It's connected to eschaton. What does the Greek word parousia mean in relation to Jesus? His return. That he's coming back. How about glossolalia? That's a fun one to say. I bet you remember this one. Newfoundland. Well, yeah, it reminds you of Newfoundland. Yeah, I shouldn't have made that connection. Like that. Yeah, yeah. Glosso is Greek for tongue, which is why it's called a glossary. It's what you're the words that your tongue is going to say as you read. Uh, glossolalia means speaking in tongues. That, that was a big deal last week. How about martyreo? I just mentioned it five minutes ago. Martyreo, from which we get the word martyr. What does martyreo mean? Witness. Witness. Good job, Lee. And finally, kerygma. What is the kerygma? Proclamation. It means proclamation. It is, in our context, specifically what the apostles were proclaiming about Jesus. So that's five Greek words. You're well on your way to a Bachelor of Theology. Congratulations. We only got one out of five. Yeah. Yeah, you're going to need to see me after class. What's that? Not allowed to give a failing mark anymore. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, back to Acts. And the next section that we're going to read, which is the actual start of Peter's sermon. By the way, I wrestled with, how do you preach a sermon about a sermon? Maybe it's better if I just read it and go sit down, because Peter's sermon is pretty great, but 
I got a job to do. So blazing forth. In our next section, which is the start of Peter's actual sermon, we head back further than just Acts. Peter takes us back to the prophet Joel. So let's find out what Joel's words have to do with tongues and with Holy Spirit. Verses 16 to 21. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. In those days, I will pour out my spirit, even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. And I will cause wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and clouds of smoke. We've seen those things in the last 40 days of Jesus' life. We've seen blood for sure. We've seen fire when the Holy Spirit entered. He came as tongues of fire and we've seen clouds of smoke. Jesus, when he ascended, he ascended up in clouds. So we've seen all these things. The sun will become dark and the moon will turn blood red before the great and glorious day of the Lord arrives. But everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's, it always seems strange to me that the first words of the church, and I think I've emphasized how important first words are, the first words of the church begin with the prophet Joel. Not with Genesis, not with Exodus, not with the King David, not even any of the Psalms, not any of the major prophets, but little old Joel. Joel 2, 28-32. So why Joel? Why does Peter lean so heavily on a prophet known for focusing on God's coming judgment? Why Joel? Well, the use of Joel is a defense for the apostles. No, guys, Peter's saying, we aren't drunk. It's too early for that party to start. But, Peter argues, it's just the right time for the real party to start. The party that Jesus emphasized when describing the kingdom of God. Jesus had a lot to say about the kingdom of God. We studied Luke for two years. How often did the kingdom of God come up? If not dozens of times, then maybe hundreds of times. He's always talking about the kingdom of God. This, this party that results when God's presence comes to earth and lives amongst the people. Well, the arrival of the kingdom of God had been described by the prophets for decades, for centuries beforehand, including by Joel. See, Joel, in, in what Peter quotes here, he's writing about the last days. And that's a phrase that you hear a lot even today, last days. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about that term. But it is a theologically loaded term that signifies the time when God's purpose on earth will be fulfilled. That's what the last days mean. God's purpose on earth being filled, fulfilled among humanity. This was a dreadful and terrible day as signified by the signs that accompany it. The sun turning to darkness, and the moon turning to blood red. And by the way, does that sound familiar? When did we have the sun blacked out from the sky? When Jesus was on the cross, right? Unnatural darkness that brought fear on the hearts of those witnessing it. It's a sign that happened to show the last days are coming. And actually, not just coming, they're here. Now, all devout Jews, like those who are gathered here, listening to Peter's sermon, They've been anticipating these last days for generations, for centuries even. They've been looking forward to these last days that the prophets spoke about. And here, Peter stands up in front of all of them and declares that the awaited days have arrived. We are now living in the last days, he's saying. 
The dreadful signs are evidence that they are witnessing the very last days. And moreover, the miracle of glossolalia, of speaking in tongues, is evidence of Joel's words coming true, that the Holy Spirit has been poured out over all the people. That's what it says here. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit upon all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. And in those days, I will pour out my Spirit, even on my servants, men and women alike, and they will prophesy. It's repeated because it's so important. In the last days, the Spirit will be poured out on the people, and all people, regardless of gender, regardless of age, young and old alike, there's no barrier upon whom the Spirit will be poured out on. In fact, it will be poured out on all people. All people. Peter misses that. He quotes it, says, I will pour my Spirit upon all people. But when the rubber meets his road, he doesn't believe it. It, it takes a lot of convincing for Peter to believe that it really is all people. He, he thinks it's just for the Jewish contingent of humanity. So the Holy Spirit's been poured out over all people, and now sons and daughters are prophesying, speaking truth in all the tongues of the known world. As I mentioned, it's here that, that Peter fails to recognize what all people means. In a few chapters, Peter will take some severe convincing before that promise can be fully realized and the gospel can be brought to the Gentiles. That is eventually to you and I. Surely Joel doesn't intend all people to mean 120 Jews gathered in an upper room in Jerusalem one day. Surely the scope is bigger than that. And Peter will find out the true social width of, of these last days soon enough. It's far greater than he can imagine. And in fact, guess what will be the key to Peter recognizing that the gift of the Spirit goes further than just the Jews? What is the thing that convinces him that it really does go to all people? Do you remember what it is? He, he gets something from the Lord. He receives a dream. A dream. Peter has a dream, a vision of unclean animals being made worthy of eating. Well, that's the same thing that Joel predicted in verse 17. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. These dreams, which are so critical to the foundation of the early church, it, it's the reason we can be in the church. It's because Peter and Paul had these dreams. These dreams are a sign of the last days, that we are living in the last days. But for right now, for Peter right now, as he's preaching this, even though he says all people, for Peter, the last days are a gift for the Jewish people. It's only Jews who are gathered here to hear this. Maybe a few uh, foreigners who became Jewish converts, but it's predominantly Jewish people who are hearing this. As I mentioned, Peter recognizes that the pouring out of the Spirit leads to prophesying, the speaking of God's truth. Now, this pouring of the Spirit and people prophesying, that's evident throughout the Old Testament. That is not a new phenomenon. Whenever the Spirit comes on a, on a prophet, they prophesy. And often it's exactly that language. Take this example from Numbers 11, 26-29. This is what Numbers says. Uh, two men, Eldad and Medad, had stayed behind in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but they had not gone out to the tabernacle. And yet the Spirit rested upon them as well. So they prophesied there in the camp. A young man ran and reported to Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. So these two guys, they were supposed to go with the other elders. They didn't. The Spirit descends on them anyway, is poured out on them anyway. And they're prophesying. And this young man runs up to Moses thinking that he's tattletailing on them. Moses, they didn't go and they're prophesying. 
Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' assistant since his youth, protested, Moses, my master, make them stop. They didn't obey you, Moses, and now they're prophesying. They gotta stop. But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon all of them. Or take this example from 1 Samuel 10. This is Saul. This is right after he is anointed to be the, the king of Israel. He's anointed by Samuel. And he's on his way home. As Saul turned and started to leave, God gave him a new heart, and all Samuel's signs were fulfilled that day. When Saul and his servant arrived at Gibeah, they saw a group of prophets coming towards them. Then the Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul, and he too began to, guess what? <laughs> Prophesy. When those who knew Saul heard about it, they exclaimed, What? Is even Saul a prophet? How did this son of Kish become a prophet? And one of those standing there said, Can just anyone become a prophet, no matter who his father is? And so that is the origin of the saying, Is even Saul a prophet? Which is a saying that I know you say in your daily, day-to-day lives. <laughs> is even Saul a prophet? Well, guess what? Moses' wish has come true. Moses wished that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit upon all of them. And guess what? That's exactly what's happening. All the Lord's people can become prophets. And the question posed by those who heard Saul prophesy is answered in the positive as well. Can just anyone become a prophet, no matter who his or her father is? Yes. Yes, that's exactly what's happening. Anyone. Here in the last days, as God's plan is being fulfilled and revealed, Literally anyone can receive the Spirit of God and begin speaking truth with boldness, living transformed lives that bring Him glory. Anyone. Moses wished for it. The people who heard Saul, they wondered about it. And now here in the last days, that's exactly what's happening. People, even failures like Peter, can have the Spirit poured out on him and he can begin to prophesy. This idea of openness to anyone and everyone shows up again here as Peter quotes Joel. It shows up again right at the very end of Peter's quotation of the prophet Joel. And really, when it shows up again, it's the ultimate point of all this. The reason that God initiates the last days spoken of by Joel and Peter when they declare in verse 21, but everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Not a few of the people who call on the name. Not if you call on the name and you are this, this, this. It's everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the point. That's the point of Joel's predicted signs and wonders and miracles. That's the point of the sun being blackened out and the moon turning blood red. That's the point of Peter and Paul dreaming dreams. That's the point of the Holy Spirit being poured out on men and women. And that's the point of those men and women prophesying. They all point to salvation. All of this, all the signs and wonders and miracles point to salvation. The day of the Lord means salvation for the faithful. And with that comes the ultimate point of it all, glory to the Father. For the unfaithful, the last days are days of terror and judgment. But to Joel and Peter and Luke and to the Father above and to us, the church, there's another side of these last days. For us, the last days represents power. Power to proclaim, as Peter does here. Power to be transformed. 
a power that we don't have in ourselves, a power that we require the Holy Spirit to do in us and for us, a power that fills us like craft vessels and shines through to a dark and hurting world. Power and glory. The glory that raised Christ from the dead. The glory that dwells within us and strips us of our sin and clothes us in garments of righteousness. Power and glory and hope. A hope of life lived in his presence. A hope of escape from the judgment of these end times that we already live in. A hope of being called and commissioned and sent, just like Peter, just like you and I, who were once filled with denial and faithlessness. Now we have hope. So that's the point of all these signs, miracles, and wonder, salvation and glory and hope. We today live in the age of miracles, the age of signs and the age of wonders. We don't see them very often, but these are the last days. We are living in them right now. The last days, all these signs and wonders and miracles, they point to salvation and glory. Salvation and glory that has already come, salvation and glory that are coming right now even as we speak, and salvation and glory that will come in completion during the parousia, the return of Jesus. Already come, presently coming, one day will come again. That's true of salvation, it's true of glory, it's also true of the last days. When Jesus died and was resurrected in the past, the last days came. But the last days are happening right now too. And eventually, at some point in history, the last days will come in completion and fulfillment when Jesus returns. Those will be the very last days. Salvation and glory, past, present, and future. Just like the end times that we find ourselves in. Salvation and glory made possible how? By the beautiful name that we sung about earlier in the service. The name that is above all other names. The glorious name of Jesus Christ, which saves us. As Joel says, as Peter says, but everyone who calls on what? The name of the Lord will be saved. The glorious name of Jesus Christ, which saves us, even in these terrible last days. And so I return to the introduction. These are the first words of the church. This is the beginning of the first words of the church. There's more first words to come in the next couple of weeks. But they, do these first words, do they draw us in and set the stage for what is to come? Yeah. Once you're hearing someone talk about the moon turning blood red and the sun being blackened out and the spirit being poured on everyone, that gets your attention, I think. Do they emphasize the significance of the events taking place? Actually, I can't think of much better to emphasize the arrival of the Holy Spirit. Are they prophetic in nature? Do they anticipate something to come? Yeah, Peter's saying these are the start of the end days, but there's more to come. And do they leave us wanting to know more? Well, I hope so, because we're spending the next two weeks talking about it. So I hope it leaves you wanting more. So those are my first words about the first words. <laughs> There's more first words to come. Uh, let's pray together. Holy Spirit, thank you that you're with us today. That just as you were poured out on the apostles, that you've been poured out on us as well. We know that you were poured out on us so that you would be glorified, so the Father and the Son would be glorified. We know that there's great power in, in you being poured out on us, Holy Spirit. And we know that because you've been poured out on us, that there is hope. Even in these dark last days that we live in, we have hope. Um, thank you for your hope. Thank you that we can be empowered 
to bring glory to your name, that we can be like Peter, a bunch of failures who now have your presence in us and are boldly proclaiming this charisma, this unified message about your life, your death, your resurrection, your ascension, and what it means for us today. In all these things, Father, we bring you praise, and uh, we love you, and we, we pray these things in the powerful name, beautiful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, everyone. Have a great week and enjoy the Super Bowl.